morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is novelist and screenwriter Rex Pickett, whose novel The Archivist will be published on November 9th. Rex, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Thank you, Charlie, for having me. I really appreciate it. So I was lucky enough to get to read this novel several months ago, even though it's just hitting bookstores this month. Um, but tell our listeners a little bit about the, the basic setup of the novel and about your protagonist, um, Emily Snow. Well, Emily Snow is a project archivist and a project archivist is like a lone gunslinger. They come in for one job and then they're out. And I kind of, I sort of love that sort of uh, metaphorical uh, connection. And she comes in to take over the processing of the papers of a very famous writer who has won a Pulitzer Prize, maybe is shortlisted for the Nobel. And her predecessor has drowned in an accidental drowning. So as she gets into the processing of the papers, as she gets into all of his work, and a lot of it is both analog and digital, as a matter of fact, she goes out into the dark archives or dark storage, and and really it's just servers. I love the kind of the sort of romanticized lyrical notion of dark archives. In fact, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. And she finds a treasure trove of love emails between the very married writer and the very married predecessor who has drowned. Yeah. And and now we go back in time to a first person story of Nadia Fontaine, who is the celebrated archivist, a writer in her own right. And she starts to um, she starts to relive their romance in a way. But it, it raises ethical issues because the famous writer just so happens to be married to a wealthy heiress who's about to donate 25 million to the library to um, renovate the eighth floor. And, and, and it's based on the beautiful Geisel Library here at UCSD where all my papers have been taken. And it's an iconic brutalist architecture. If you've yeah. ever seen a picture of it, it's an extraordinary library. So what happens is, is she starts to realize she sees a tragic love story unfold in these emails back and forth, kind of almost tortured in a way. And not only does she come upon the that the relationship, she starts to suspect that maybe she didn't die in an accidental drowning. Yeah. So she is um, she's in a very compromised place. So there's there's mystery here. There's um, uh, there's sort of literaryness. There's we're going to get into sort of talking about some of these ethical issues that come up. Um, and so all of that makes for a pretty thick book. Uh, I mean, this is a 700 <laughs> yeah, I know. page. It's, I know. A, it's a deliciously sort of slow burn novel that I think will really richly reward um, readers. Thank you. But so why did you, what was it about this story that made you want to tell it slowly to, to unfold it over this sort of longer period of time or in terms of pages? And and how does the the process of writing a novel that long differ from what you've done before with, with shorter novels. 
Well, that's a great question. First of all, when I had the idea for the novel, it was actually an idea for a, a limited series, an eight-episode limited series. Yeah. So I wrote the first episode, the pilot, and normally what you do is show it to your agent and then hopefully get a deal to write the rest of them and hopefully go into production. But I was so swept up in the story, Charlie, I wrote all eight episodes. 535 screenplay pages. Wow. And when I got to the end, Rick Blywise of Blackstone Audiobooks, they had done all three of my sideways books. Yeah. And he called up and said, Rex, we're a full-scale publisher now. Uh, do you have any ideas? And I said, Rick, it just so happens I have written an adaptation of a novel that I didn't write. And I would <laughs> like to write And he had this pause for a moment. It's a novel I ideated, but I adapted without having written it. And now... I would actually like to write it. And we, we literally just did a deal over the phone. So in some ways, in terms of the length of the novel, I think because two things, one, because it's based on an eight episode limited series, and hopefully we'll go back to the limited series and hopefully it'll be yeah. made one day. Yeah. It, it is it is a pretty sophisticated, but it, it has so many different layers in it. Yeah. And because it's a novel nested within a novel, I just don't think, look, I'm fully aware and actually, the hard covers have just come out, and they're beautiful. And they're only oh, six hundred and forty. They're only six hundred and forty pages. Okay. So, so it didn't get cut down. Maybe they moved. They, maybe they changed the typeface a little bit. It is long. It, it and and but um, I think because so you have a deep third person um, narration of Emily Snow. So yeah. we're close to her. We never leave her at all. But then when we go to Nadia, we go into first person. Yeah. So it's it's a whole nother novel. And I think. Look, I could have made it 350 or 400 pages if if I had only had Nadia Fontaine, the deceased, uh, troubled and, um, you know, brilliant archivist, if I'd had her just in email. But I, I don't think it would have personalized her story enough. Yeah, yeah. And, and so when you get into I know it's so, but I'll tell you just quickly, it is the audiobook is coming to me today. And it's being done. I got to choose the audiobook narrator. Yeah. And so when you talk audiobooks, as you know, are on the ascendancy. People are listening to them like crazy. And people will tell you with audiobooks two things. One, the longer the better. Yeah. They, they don't want short audiobooks. And the second thing is if they're done well, they they really are engrossed. And a great example is Roberto Bolaño's 2666. I don't, it's a thousand pages. I don't think I could read the book, Charlie, but listening <laughs> to it. And yeah. I love Bologna. It's hypnotic. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, reading requires something different. It requires deep, immersive reading, you know, where you read an hour, an hour and a half, two hours a day. But audiobooks are different. We have yeah. what's it's being replaced by deep, immersive listening. Yeah. And it is it's great working with Blackstone. We get getting to pick our own um, our own audiobook readers. I actually did a podcast with Mike Lenz, who read my last book with Blackstone. So um, that that is a, a great process. Let's well, I, I mean, about Okay, go ahead. Let's, let's talk a little bit about archives. Um, okay. So you're you've actually gone through this process of of having your papers archived at an academic institution. Tell us a little bit about what what that was like and how it how did that process sort of suggest the idea of a novel set in at least partly set in university archives. Well, when I was um, when Sideways came out, you know, suddenly I I was you know uh, have a lot of fame and attention sort of in a way. And so I did a couple of faculty club dinners and the director of special collections and archives there, Linda Clausen said, well, you know, we'd love to take your work Rex. And I never really thought about it. And then I was living in LA and I got a chance to go to the country of Chile to write sideways three Chile. And I'm looking at boxes and boxes of my writings. Cause I do go back to the IBM Selectric days. So there is a lot yeah. of stuff printed out. There's also a lot of born digital. Also people don't know about me. 
I've written and directed two feature films. So there's yep. also the canisters of film, whatever. And so finally, I thought, I'm going to leave Santa Monica. I'm, I'm sick of LA. And I gave up my apartment. I donated all my books. That was really tough, Charlie. That was 2,000 some books. And I had all these other boxes. And I, I um, emailed Linda and she said, great. So drop them off at a loading dock. So me and an intern. I, so think about this. Way back in the 80s, I go to LA with five boxes and trying to make it. I'm going uh, to, I've been enrolled at USC graduate film school. I ultimately dropped out and made two feature films. I return some, you know, two and a half, three decades later with 50 boxes, no children, no pets, nothing. That's it. That's my life. And I drop them off on a loading dock with some guy on a forklift. And I figure they're just going to write picket on them and put them in a, you know, some repository, whatever. So I go to Chile, I go to New York, and it just so happens my sideways play is also being produced by three-time Tony award-winning director, Des Mackinac at La Jolla Playhouse, which is on the campus of my alma mater. So they held yet another dinner to honor my papers being taken. And a woman comes up to me at the end of the dinner, and I, I get choked up about this all the time. She says, hi, I'm Kate, I'm your archivist. Ugh. I went, oh my God, I, there's a person behind this. I yeah. thought, you know, like my stuff, and then she said, would you like to come down and see what we've done? I come down. First of all, there's two display cases as you walk in of all this memorabilia. My life. I'm looking at my life's work. Yeah. Then she takes me down into the stacks, into this restricted area. And there's these beautiful gray document boxes yeah. with Rex Pickett papers. There's my life's work right there. And this, and she said she'd spent a half a year going through it all and processing and organizing the papers and everything else. And I just was so moved by that that I um, I started talking to her and 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 really collaborated with her on on the limited series. I thought it was a world that had not been explored at all. I also think, in a way, bear in mind when you're given a collection, they go through it. A lot of the people who give the collection, the donors don't even know what's in the collection sometimes, and they're finding compromising materials. Archivists are on the front line of a lot of pretty interesting information. They're almost like the new detectives in some ways, and they make subjective choices about material, and they get into people's personal lives. I thought, whoa, this is interesting. And so it was um, It was a comment. It was starting to really talk to Kate, is her name, Kate Seed, my archivist. She's just fantastic. She was the inspiration for this book. In fact, such the inspiration when I wrote the novel, I said, I'll give you a co-credit. She didn't want it. <laughs> well, I mean, my readers, my listeners won't, won't be surprised to know how much I like this novel because, you know, having been an antiquarian bookseller, having worked as a, uh, an appraiser for university archives, having, wow. uh, you know, uh, written books about the rare book world. This was, this is, was right up my alley. Um, but it is, I mean, it is this, it's this sort of hidden world, um, this world of yeah. archives that, that people don't really think about unless you happen to be, you know, okay, I'm going to write a book about such such a person whose archives are, are at this at this particular school. And I love the way that world kind of unfolds um, in this novel. Let's let's Thank go you. to the beginning. I, I like, to, it's always nice to talk about beginnings of novels because we're not giving anything away. Um, and one of the things that's dramatic about the beginning of this novel is that California is on fire when this novel starts. I know. Uh, and I love that you have a character named Snow who is, you know, driving into this fire. Um, what What are you telling us about the world of this novel um, by having the sort of prominence of this of the fire at the beginning? Well, I'm glad you picked up on that. I mean, in 2017, we um, 
we did sideways the play in Santa Rosa. And two weeks after the play closed, they had the Tubbs fire in the house I was staying in burned to the ground. So, so fires do go. And, and I grew up in Southern California. So I like to believe that the novel is very evocative of Southern California. In fact, yeah, where I'm talking to you right now is where Emily Snow lives in my apartment. I'm a big believer in that. But I'm also, you know, when I was 19, I read the entire collected works of Jung and I'm, I'm into symbols. I'm, I'm into those kind of things. To me, the world on fire for me, it it sort of it, it sort of symbolizes or metaphorically not only that the world is in upheaval, but it also is in transformation. So fire is transformation. As you know, the novel ends in torrential rains, and we're having those in Northern California right now. So I, you know, I don't put that in there, you know, specifically to be symbolic, but I am aware of it. I want something kind of dramatic. This is not a, Emily Snow is not from Southern California. She's from the East Coast. She's come out and she's really walking into a world of fire when she gets into this archive. And, um, and, it, and she really doesn't know what she's getting into. And so for me, as Ernest Hemingway once say, said, you know, you know, always remember the weather, you know, and I, and I want to make it very evocative of, of what it's like. I love the feeling of a, of Santa Ana's and ashes blowing in skies, whatever, because her world is about to go into that kind of turmoil. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, I think that worked really well. Emily, at the beginning um, of the book, we just, you established her pretty quickly as I would say as a loner. Um, yeah. And, you know, as somebody who, you know, as you said, she has these jobs, these, these, you know, moments at a particular space, and then she moves on to the next place right. for the next job. Um, why did you want her as a character to be as isolated as she is, especially in, in the opening chapters of the novel? Such a, you asked the best questions. <laughs> you know, must be because you're a writer. Well, first of all, um, you know, I'm talking to Kate and also other archivists, but I talk to Kate a lot. A lot of archivists are loners. Yeah. They, they work in a cubicle. They don't really, yes, they work in an office and they have supervisors and whatever, but the actual work they do on a project is alone. They get into a collection and they go into the boxes and they're in there very much alone. But I, I also wanted to, her isolation heightens when she comes across those love emails and goes back into that story. What happens is that she goes much more up into her imagination. She goes up into fantasy about that world in, in some ways. And so I think being, and also I'm kind of an isolated person myself, so I can actually relate to it. I'm not really an extroverted, okay, where's the party tonight? You know, I like the idea that she is, she's kind of a lone wolf. And I like the fact that she's very solitary, but it, what it does is it really, really heightens the the tension when she comes across this very compromising material, which she should probably turn over to her supervisor or the the directors, but she chooses not to. And that's a, a huge decision. And, you know, I, I think what's what's subtle and nuanced, you know, most, let's, let's face it, mysteries, you know, and there's great ones out there. It's cops, it's forensic FBI profilers and, you know, lawyers and whatever. This is an archivist who really is a kind of a young adult Nancy Drew in a way. Yeah. She stumbles upon something and she really becomes a sort of new detective. And I love mystery I love mysteries. And so I know this is going to sound, I'm, I'm going to say this at the risk of immodesty because I <laughs> want to compare myself to this, but I love the English patient because I love tragic love stories. Sure. I really do. I just, I love, I love the book. I love the movie. And the long goodbye is just one of the great mystery novels. And it's really not a whodunit. It's really about betrayal. And, yeah. and so I, you know, I'm trying to marry in some ways those two things, but yeah, I think her being solitary and lonely 
heightens the tension of what she's holding inside with this information that's that she's she's stumbled upon. Yeah, I think, it, as you said, it is a whodunit, but it's a lot of other things as well. Yeah. It, we're going to talk about it being a novel about ethics, but it's also a novel, <laughs> I think, about about intimacy and the, the, the dangers and the rewards of that. Can you talk a little bit about the necessary and yet certainly dangerous intimacy between, you know, the archivist and the person who's being archived or the studier and the studied in, in the academic world? Well, when I gave my boxes over, I, <laughs> I didn't do a pre-curation and maybe I should have. And, you know, a funny story when I did meet Kate and I went down into the special collections and archives, she goes, I, she started blushing. She goes, I have a question for her. I go, what's that? She goes, who's Herb Tuns? And I said, I, I don't know. And she handed me this book. I guess when I was 20, I'd written a porno novel under a pseudonym. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think it's a, a news bulletin that the author of Sideways may have tried his hand at erotica to pay the rent. but, <laughs> but. Um, you know, and she was kind of blushing because she wanted to know, do you want that in your collection or not? I said, I, you know, I'm an open book. Sure. <laughs> I don't care. But a lot of people might have pre-curated their boxes and taken that out. And that gets into another issue, you know, in this climate we're living in, which is much more sensitive. Yeah. I think archivists are probably going back into collections now and looking at stuff that maybe should be put under restrictions or maybe actually being taken out of collections. So it it is, a. I mean, when Kate says, I'm your archivist, and I've read everything in your boxes, pretty much, not every yeah. draft of every screenplay. Sure. And I said to her, I'll never forget this, Charlie. And I think this line is in the novel. I said, you know me better than I do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and 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 honestly, you know, at the end of the day, when we're lying on our deathbed, and they're they're going to turn the stopcock on the morphine or whatever. Is it about money or anything? No, it's about somebody who knows you intimately. That is going to, for me at any rate, that at my, you know, at the end, I want. I want people to have known me. I'd like them to know me through my work. Of course, they know me through sideways, but it's I'd like them to know me through my work in another way. And I'd like to have those few friends around me who know me really well. And when I when I met Kate, I thought, God, this woman, and she's very literary in her own right and, and, a, and a writer in her own right. And I just thought, wow, I mean, this is, you know, it's amazing that somebody has delved because I I'm an open book when I write. And I mean, she's reading early journals when I was 18 and 19, tortured cacography, you know, scribblings and whatever. And I thought, God, you know, I mean, this is somebody I, I need to know. Yeah, I've had that experience. One of the things I did during COVID was kind of go through my own papers. I had stacks and stacks of drafts and think about, you know, okay, what 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 should be kept and what shouldn't be kept. And and that that whole issue of like not wanting to censor anything. But also, it's like, does anybody really need 15, 20 printouts of, you know, the book no. tale or whatever? Um, but but it is uh, it is it's a fine line between um, sort of consolidating things and making them more readily available and either intentionally or not intentionally sort of censoring certain certain parts of an archive. Um, at, at one point in the narrative, and you sort of mentioned this a little bit earlier, um, Emily decides to do something that kind of goes against her professional ethics. Um, and yeah, I think you do, you write this in such a way that the readers are completely on her side. How do you get a reader behind a protagonist, even when the protagonist is doing something that maybe she ought not to do? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think when I've talked to archivists like Kate and others as well, they've all come to these subjective decisions. Most of them, by the way, aren't fans of their superiors and their 
directors and their supervisors, they often tend to be micromanagers looking over their shoulders. And there are subjective decisions to be made. And they know that if they bring this particular item to their uh, supervisor, whatever, they're just going to say, look, shred it or take it away from them. But they remember in the, the Society of American Archivists Code of Ethics, and I just wrote an article about this guy, Ken Duckett, and it's kind of a longer story. And it's going to digress who found the um, Harding Phillips love letters, President Harding Phillips, and he, and he was ordered to turn them over and he actually microfilmed them and kept them. And he is a legend in the archival world. So he literally did something illegal, but he made a subjective choice, not for money, not for ideology, not because he was compromised and not for ego. He did it for ethics. Yes. He said, and the ethics are this, preserve the historical record. If we don't have the, in most archivists, sure, a lot of them just work in jobs and just come and go, but many of them really do, they they have a real respect for that, you know, they the Society of American Archivists has a code of ethics and it is long. In fact, I actually sort of abbreviated in the novel because yeah. I want you to know that this is the code of ethics that Emily follows, but that does, how does that code of ethics lead you through navigate you what what kind of a compass is it when you come across the compromising materials she comes across these they're beautiful love letters and then we find out they were writing they were collaborating on a book together she has this woman nadia fontaine who's drowned has really revivified this guy who's a jaded screenwriter now basically and and, and it's like she she knows the the estate is going to destroy it we, we know that that's going to happen. And Emily knows that. And she's young and she's faced with this ethical decision. And my favorite scene in the whole novel is when she confronts Raymond West, the author, the professor. She goes and confronts him and says, it's your decision. You know, so, yes, you're right. What she does is unethical. But I think she she believes that, you know, the truth is more important and it's worth as Ken Duckett did back in the 60s with the Harding. He risked his 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 professional reputation and his livelihood. He risked it for this. That to me is amazing. Yeah. That's amazing to me, Charlie, that that an archivist, you just think, oh, they're just some librarian. No, of course, they're not librarians, yeah. Yeah. but that they would risk that. And they they do. And I know a, a digital preservationist and I can't name him. And, and he spoke on condition of anonymity. He was told to shred all this incredible stuff. He has been digitizing it and putting it up on the dark archives. It's like his life's mission is to get it up there. And I said, how are they going to find it, you know, Chris? And he goes, well, I have a notebook. I go, well, what if you die? What happens to the notebook? He says, well, at least I know it's up there that I did my job. And I, to me, that's um, there's something moving about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of those things where there's sort of, there's, there are the rules and then there's sort of a higher level of, yeah. um, and as, as she delves deeper and deeper into these archives and trying to find out what happened to Nadia, um, Emily says, and this is a quote from the novel, she says she had ethics on one side and the terror of truth on the other. If I had to pick out like one phrase to, to say what this novel is about, I think that might be the phrase I would pick out. Um, how, how are ethics and truth sort of related to one another and yet also at odds with one another in, in the pages of this novel? Well, I think to me, to me, it's always been for me as a writer, it's been about the truth. And even if it's a comic novel like Sideways, I I bared my soul. I wore my heart on my sleeve. I didn't um, I didn't hold anything back. And I think there, you know, yes, ethically, they're supposed to preserve the historical record at, you know, at all costs. But ultimately, too, ethically, it's not Emily's decision. It's it's really the decision of the of the donor. 
And the donor here is Raymond West. But she also knows she because bear in mind, very early on, I and that's why the novel's long. I have to set up a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I set up, I set up Raymond West's uh wife. Yeah. And she's not a bad person, you know, although I suppose she could be a red herring, you know, if it gets made into a limited series. But you know, it it's like it's ultimately gonna be her decision over Raymond, what they're gonna do with this stuff. So ethically, Emily should probably present these materials these compromising materials but it's a bombshell thing it's not just these torrid love emails in this story it's also of course um the book that they were writing together i mean this is you know not only that i mean i'm giving something away we find out she's pregnant when she died i mean and and you know so at what point for me i think for emily the truth trumps to some extent the 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 pure parsing of the ethics and it becomes her interpretation of the ethics. So this, you sort of mentioned this before, but you include documents that are written in the voice of Nadia Fontaine, the, the supposedly drowned previous um, archivist. Right. Um, Can you talk about the, the challenge of, of creating that, of, of writing, not as Rex Pickett, but as, as Nadia Fontaine, the challenge of writing in a, in a new voice and a style that really has to be very different from the voice and the style of the rest of the book for us to believe that, you know, it was written by a different person. Well, that's a great question. And it was, I talked to Kate a lot and, and I had a woman editor. I only wanted to work with women at the time that I was writing the book. I always read at night, Charlie, every night, because I, I just want to be still immersed in language. I only read women authors and particularly Clarice Lispector, the great, she's Ukrainian, but she actually grew up in, in Brazil and wrote in Portuguese. And, and she writes these emotional landscapes. And I, I tried to get into the psyche of women because I'm writing naughty in first person. Yeah. And I and and I said to women, if, you, if there's anything in here you that, that sounds off or it's cringeworthy or whatever. And I also, you know, it could have been, a more erotic novel in some ways, but I went away from that. I think there's only maybe one scene because I don't think that that really plays to that. And I, and then, then other people said, Rex, just, just pretend you're, you know, you're yourself, but you happen to be writing in Nadia. If we keep it cerebral, if we keep it about love, if we keep it about these larger things and we don't get into, you know, how you pull your underwear <laughs> Or something, you know, that could be a little bit cringeworthy. It, then once I made that leap, Charlie, then it was it was easy for me. Because bear in mind, all my sideways novels are written in first person. Yeah. So I actually prefer the first person. The close third is a little bit harder. So I want, but I wanted to interiorize Nadia. Yeah. I yeah. Emily, even though it's close third and I do get inside her, it is a little more exteriorized. And bear in mind, she's only 27 and I'm way past that. But Nadia, I wanted to interiorize her emotional journey with Raymond West, the author, and yeah. and and to do that, I had to go first person. And you're right; it it wasn't wasn't easy to do. Uh, while we're on the subject of Nadia's documents, let's talk about structure for a minute. Um, this novel uses a number of different structural elements and devices. It, you know, tell us a little bit about how you structure the novel, and was that something that you? you planned out ahead of time. I mean, I know as a screenwriter, you know, there's a specific structure for screenplays. Did you sort of think about how this was going to be put together ahead of time or did you work it out as, as you went along? Well, first of all, as, as you know, I wrote a eight part limited series. And so in a, in, in a screen, and I've written more screenplays than novels. People don't know that about me. And I've also written and directed two feature films, but um, in a screenplay, you can just, you can go back in time a year 
In fact, the first time you do it, you just go a year earlier, and yep. then you don't even have to put a year earlier because as soon as you see Nadia Fontaine alive, you know it's a year earlier. Right. It's it's the simplest thing in the world, not in a novel. We I need I needed a um a kind of a, a bridge to that world. And so the the emails were that bridge. We start in on the and so I had to make that decision. The big decision I had to make too, did I want Nadia Fontaine to be written in first person? And that actually came later. And actually my um, my line editor is tragically dead now, but she, she said, what about putting her in first person? I said, yeah, I, I thought about that, you know, cause it would really differentiate her from Emily Snow. And then the second thing is, are you going to write her story or just have her emails? And I think the emails, if it just would have been emails between the two of them, I don't think you would have gotten the richness of their love relationship of, it, yeah. you know, and how, and how close they really were not only they're not close just as lovers, they are close as lovers, but I'm, I'm trying to get to love on a different level. They're close as lovers artistically, yep. you know, and she's not just his muse. And that was another thing I was concerned about. I don't want her to just be, Oh, she's, you know, lit a spark under him. No, she's collaborating with him. She's his equal. And I don't want to give away the ending, but you know, it's, we, we do get a unification, <laughs> a redemptive unification of, of this person. And, and it goes to, to the heart of a lot of people who are archivists. They work in anonymity. They work in, in a solitary way. They don't get credit for their work. I mean, Kate worked on my papers for six months and she, it should say on the finding aid, you know, Kate Saeed, you know, whatever. No, they don't get any credit at all. And, and I, and I, I know that kind of, uh, kind of wounds wounds me or hurts me to think that. And so I wanted her to actually get credit for something and for him to, and it was actually in, in many ways was me giving Kate credit for how much she gave me of her profession and of her world. She gave so much of it, you know. I feel like there's sort of, there's sort of two worlds of this novel. There's the world of the archive, archives and the archivist and the documents. And then there's this world of a world famous novelist with a very wealthy wife and, that's got to be a little daunting to create a novelist as, as a novelist to create a fictional novelist who's supposed to be in the running for the Nobel prize. Um, I mean, I know, don't think either one of us are in the running for that quite yet. Uh, and so that, that, that's gotta be quite a leap. Can, can you talk about, um, you know, sort of what it was like to create Raymond and, and were you, were you ever sort of intimidated by him and his success? No, I, I honestly wasn't because I, Obviously, yeah, I'm not going to be getting the Nobel anytime soon, you know, but I, I just hope to maybe get shortlisted for the Edgar and then I, I actually would be very happy. Although I am behind two Academy Award winners, you know, the yeah, yeah. Uh, My Mother Dreams of Satan's Disciples in New York was a short film I wrote, my ex-wife directed and it won the Academy Award. And of course, Sideways won for Best Adapted Screenplay. No, what you know, I just took sort of some of the fame that I experienced from Sideways as a novelist and just kind of imagined um, and actually to some extent his wife, Elizabeth West is, is sort of similar. I just kind of amplified a little bit to my ex-wife, who's now the chair of NYU Tisch School of the Art graduate film. She's a heavyweight. And, uh, you know, so I just kind of took that to kind of another level. I also, for the novelist, uh, I drew a little bit on Kazuro Ishiguro, who is a Nobel prize winning author. And in fact, his legacy work remains of the day 
he wrote the first draft in 30 days. Yeah. So I drew on that in a way. And, and, you know, when you meet these people, yeah, they're, they've been heavily awarded. Look, I've spent a lot of time with Alexander Payne. He's won Academy Awards and everything. But when you're with them, Charlie, yes, they're smart people, they're creative, but they're not like, they're still just human beings, yeah. you know? And I tried to bring Raymond down. Yes, he does have these accolades and he is this kind of genius, but I try to bring him down to the human. And Emily brings him down to the human, he has literally pushed this whole affair and everything aside. It, it was going to upturn his entire life. He's pushed it aside and she's brought it back to him. Yeah. And it's like, it, it, and disinterred it. And, and it's like, oh my God, your face was something you thought you had buried forever. And so to me, he's very human. And, and that, that was not hard for me to do to do that at all. Yeah. Actually. And, and I, you know, he has weaknesses, which I think also makes a, makes him, human to us and you know i've had that same experience both with the with the podcast and elsewhere and in fact i made i met um ishiguro in england one time and he was wow, wow. super nice he was it was the first panel he had done since winning the nobel prize and they wow. were it was a panel about book collecting they were you know he was wow uh, at the at the chipping camden book festival but uh we had we had a nice chat why well, i'd yeah, love to get him i'd love to get a blurb from him <laughs> well i you know it is you just you do have this realization that oh yeah these are these are just people. They're not, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Raymond's Raymond's wife says something that really uh, struck me. She said, "Every writer needs someone to fall in love with him who believes that an aspi that aspiring to be a writer of enduring fiction is a noble ambition." Um, how have how has the belief of other people in you and your work um, affected you in in your career? Well, I mean. I was making films down here at UCSD, which is just five miles that way. And um, and um, I met my now ex-wife, Barbara Schock, and she does come from Means. And um, but I think she really believed in me. We made we spent 10 years making two feature films together. It was very, very tough. And, and on the relationship and everything else, she um, produced them, acted them. I wrote, directed and edited the first one. And, uh, and but she really, truly believed in me and is super loyal. And then after that. There are people who believe in you and then suddenly they don't believe in you. And then there are people who don't believe in you, but suddenly Alexander Payne calls up one day and says, I want to make that into a movie. And suddenly you got a hundred people who believe in you, you know, and it's like, I don't know who to trust anymore, but to be honest with you, um, I don't know, Blackstone Publishing believed in this book, you know, and, you know, there were some struggles. They, they were worried about the link from a commercial standpoint, but at the end of the day, I convinced them I would like it to be shorter. In fact, I said to my line editor, Peggy, I said, cut everything you can. I took 99% of her cuts, Charlie, 99. And she said, I don't know where else to cut, Rex. You know, this novel just has to be this way. Yes, we live in the world where people don't wake up and read War and Peace or Don Quixote. You know, I, I understand that. But but for me, it's, um, you know, it, that somebody believes, and I've had 12 agents in my life and whatever, I would have loved to just have that one person 30, 40 years ago who believed in me all the way till now, because it seems like, you know, it, um, it, 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 it's, it's huge. It, yeah, to be honest with you, Kate is the one who believes in me along with Blackstone now, because we, yeah. we're having a great, great line. Kate is the one who's believed in this from the very beginning, that this could have been a great story. And that, that means a lot because writing is about momentum. 
It's not just about cranking out those 500 words or whatever. I mean, look, if you're F. Scott Fitzgerald or Hemingway, you've been believed in by Max Perkins since you were 25 years old. You've already got a book contract. You've got the best editor who ever lived. I'm, I kind of come and go in that way. So yeah, that belief to it, it, to me, I write on momentum. I write on emotion. I mean, one line can, can capsize me from somebody, you know, why are you writing this? And I could tell you a long story. I don't want to go on a digression. You know, my ex-wife, in all fairness to her, she told me when she read Sideways to burn it. Hmm. And so suddenly she didn't believe in me anymore. And I almost did, Charlie. You know, so it's, uh, again, I, I'll say no criticism of, is above criticism itself. Just because somebody says it doesn't make it so, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, you said that writing is about momentum. And I think reading is about momentum, too. And I, yeah. I would I would say to my to our listeners, yeah, don't be afraid of the length of this book, because to me, it was the kind of book where, like, maybe the first day I read, read 50 pages, and then the next day, I was like, oh, I'm going to read 75 pages. And then by the end, I'm like reading 250 pages in a day, because, wow. because it just, yeah, it is, to me, it's that kind of book that it draws you in from the very beginning, and then it just, it, you slowly just get more and more, you're interested to start out with, and then you just get drawn down, like, into this, into this world. And so I, yeah, the, the, Length didn't put, wasn't off-putting to me at all. It, it, it uh, you know, it meant I got to spend time with these people, which was which was fun. Um, you're talking about you know being in the film business and and being in the fiction writing business. Um, Raymond West uh, is having trouble adopt ad adapting a novel for the screen, um, which is something that that you have done. What was that experience like? Um, taking taking Sideways as a novel. And, and moving it into the world of, of the screen. Well, first of all, Raymond is not a screenwriter. So to yeah, him, it's just, yeah. it's just a big payday. And he probably doesn't even, he's probably reading books on how to write a screenplay or whatever. <laughs> uh, and, and he's, and also it's kind of, um, you know, I, I'm, I remember meeting a very famous TV writer and he'd had a couple of very successful shows, but he was just now writing pilots and getting paid a lot. And I said, why do you, and I used to play golf with him. I said, why are you doing this? And you don't need the money. He goes, I'm just sodomizing the system. You know, So that's kind of like, I mean, it was a pretty crude kind of thing to say, but he was just taking the money. From my standpoint, I didn't, first of all, I didn't adapt sideways. So it was adapted by Alexander Payne right. and, yeah. his, and his co-writer, Jim Taylor. But to be honest with you, it was Alexander Payne. It was 90%. But they gave me every draft of the screenplay yeah. for my yeah. notes. And I have adapted novels before. Frankly, it's it's easy because you're, you know, I, I, almost everything I write, and I'm writing my autobiography, it's three volumes, it's called My Life on Spec. So I'm mostly writing on spec. But when you're doing an adaptation, um, you know, you're already given the source material, you're given yeah. the characters. Yeah. I mean, when I, I'm, I'm used to I'm used to tabula rasa <laughs> every time I turn yeah. on the computer. Although I will say when I wrote uh, The Archivist, people will be shocked by this. It is, you know, it's a long book. It's 640 pages, but I wrote the first draft in 90 days. I wrote every day. So I'm so happy to hear you say that, that yes, it starts a little slow with the fires and I'm trying to establish this world that she's coming. Yeah. But yeah. As you get in to her work and then this dark archives, and of course, when she comes across this stuff and it kind of keeps building and, you know, sort of building in a way. And that that was intentional. Bear in mind, I go back to the day and maybe you do, too. I'm probably a little older than you. But where, you know, we didn't have the Internet. We didn't have our yeah. cell phones. We didn't have this stuff. And when I read the collected works of Carl Jung, I read five, six hours every day for six months. And I read all 20 volumes. And that's called deep immersive reading. And it's it's going the way of lace work. And this is why I urge your listeners, please, if you are taken, you know, um, 
if you're averse to holding a big 640 page hardcover, which looks beautiful in my hands, I can't tell you. When, when Sideways came out, St. Martin's Press came out with this ugly trade paperback. They treated yeah. me so badly. Rick Blyweiss and Blackstone have treated me and Samantha Benson there. They've treated me so well. This hardcover is beautiful, but yeah, I urge you to listen. You, I urge you to listen to the audiobook. Yeah. You know, and, and let it, it let it carry you along if it's a little bit slow for you in some ways. But um, but for me, adaptations, anything where you give me the source material, it's that's easy from a screenplay yeah. standpoint. Um, Raymond says at one point he he praises a particular Kafka book and he he says that it's worthy of praise because it is without the artifice of modernism. What what do you see as the artifice of modernism? And is that something that you you use or you avoid in your work? Well, and, and actually, it's funny. I, I, I forget that line because Kafka really was a modernist. His novels yeah, yeah. were. But his novels don't stand the test of time. We all know that now. They're they're incredibly boring to read. Uh, his short fiction is brilliant. But what um, but what Raymond is referring to, something I, I discovered on, was his letters to Milena, who died in the concentration camp. We don't have her side. There, it, You see the personal side of Kafka. And this is so there's Rex Pickett. You know, putting himself into Raymond West, the the famous novelist, is is he? I love the personal. I love when somebody gives to me of the personal. For instance, Anais Nin, her novels, I'm sorry, they're dribble, but her her unexpurgated diaries are unbelievable. I mean, they really take. And so I, I like it when people infuse things with the personal. And and in um, and to me, you know, modernism. You know, look, I I came of age reading Elaine Robguerre and had to, I felt this peer group pressure to read everything he wrote and William Burroughs and Thomas Pynchon and all those guys, you know, and they don't really, they don't really stand the test of time. What stands the test of time is story, is character and emotion. Those are timeless things to me. And a lot of that modernism is, um, you know, it was fashionable at the time, but you know, it's not what stands the test of time because Charlie time is the harshest critic. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, we've talked about some of the major characters, but the archivist is, you know, you, you, you mentioned before about how you worked with writing uh, from the point of view of women or writing about women. There's a lot of strong women in this novel, not just the one that we've mentioned so far, but there's, uh, there's Raymond West's wife. Um, there's uh, Helena Blackwell, who is, is one of the, you know, higher ups in the you know, in, in the library. And it, it strikes me that like at the core of this novel, there's this, this man, um, this, this novelist Raymond West, but that almost everyone in his orbit uh, is a woman. Can, can you talk a little bit about, about that, that dynamic? And did you, and did you see that as, as uh, you know, something that you wanted to play with? You know, this was early in the morning and these are deep questions, Charlie, <laughs> you know, you're, and I mean, really a great question. You know, first of all, the archival world is largely women. So it would be disingenuous to make Emily Snow a man. I mean, she's sure. this, I mean, I, I don't know what the figures are, but I'm going to guess it's 80% women in there. You know, the director of special collections, you know, there, I didn't model it after her, but she is a woman, whatever. I was married to an extremely strong woman. Like I said, she's chair of NYU to school, <laughs> you know, film graduate arts. I mean, you know, I, I, and actually when I was married, I had no women friends. But since since getting divorced and being alone, I have mostly only women friends. Seriously, I have a lot because they cut straight to the personal for me. With men, you know, I got to talk about golf and baseball before we can get, and that's fine. I, I I enjoy that too, you know. And you go hang out, you know, whatever, like Jack and Miles do. But with women, I feel like um, we get to deeper subjects. And I and I I'm actually somebody 
who is now it's getting kind of personal. I'm not intimidated by strong or successful women. I would love to be with a woman who's extremely successful and has achieved a lot. They don't, they don't intimidate me at all. And, and so I'm used, I'm used to those kind of women. I hire when I made films, I hired women whenever I could. I think they, they try harder. I demanded um, a woman editor uh, on, on this book. I would not work with somebody else. Um, You know, I, I don't know. I just, I, I find, that I, I'm not interested in weak women characters. I, I think they're a cliche. I think they're a stereotype. And, um, and, and I, and I love that these, and, 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 you know, not all these women, these women are flawed too. They're not, they're not oh, yeah. perfect. Some one in particular is very, very flawed. Um, but, um, but even, even the wife, you know, I, I love the line when Raymond, you know, he's kind of out there and he's drunk at one point and his wife confronts him about the affair. And he says, you've colonized my unconscious." You know, he feels like she has brought him up and she kind of owns him in a way. And this is kind of what happened to me. I hope my ex-wife isn't listening to this. And she kind of felt like she owned me after our two feature films and owned my imagination, owned my creative instrument, if you will. And this is kind of how Raymond feels. He feels stuck in that way, that he's like a, a poodle at a at a social party or something, you know what I mean, for her. He's the Nobel Prize winning, whatever. And she made him with her money. And it is true. She did. So that's a, a conflicted place to be as a person. You don't you want to feel totally self-made. So I've been around strong women my whole life. And I and I love I love strong women characters. Well, um, Rex, I promise you, if we meet up in California one of these days, I will not make you talk about either golf or baseball. Uh, I'm, I'm not particularly good on either of those topics myself. Um, we, we like <laughs> to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. Um, you should be able to answer each of them okay. with just a few words, but hopefully okay. it'll give us a little insight into you and to your writing. Okay. So if you're ready, we will begin. Okay. What word do you love to work into your writing? I would say... Any word that starts with D, for some reason, you know, I, you know, I don't know if it's dismay or dissolution or, um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I seem to like the D words in some ways. I, and people, of course, have criticized me because I seem to like polysyllabics a little, yeah. a little too much. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? You know, I'm not sure. I, I love words so much. Um, you know, I think it, the only words that if it just doesn't, if it doesn't fit a description, right. Or when, or when they're reaching, when they're reaching for a word, when they don't need to reach for a word, I can't think of a specific word. Actually. Okay. Where's your favorite place to write? Well, I'm sitting right now at a standing desk, but actually to tell you the truth, I wrote the archivist on my couch over there with my feet up on the table. And I wrote the teleplay on the eighth floor of Geisel library. Um, and I get up there and put my headphones on had a couple cup of coffee, but I used to write for years at a desk until it gave me back problems. To be honest with you, I write on my couch. Where could you never write? A coffee shop. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? You know, I was very bad at English in high school and I got into college on my math and physics skills. So I never really learned grammar because my English teachers were so awful. And so I let other... I, I sort of know grammar sort of through the, just through reading so much, but I, I don't really know the rules about intransitive verbs and everything. So I, I kind of let 
my line editor figured that out. Yeah. But I, you know, I guess one, you know, Hemingway said, don't use adverbs. So uh, to be honest with you, I like adverbs. I, I do cut them back after a while. You know, he said angrily or whatever. You don't want all, always, but I, I do like adverbs. So that's the one, one rule I overlook. Okay. Um, what's the first book you remember reading? Probably was the Hardy Boys series. So we have mysteries now have been in my DNA. And then when I discovered the long goodbye, when I was 20, I thought, oh my God, you know, this is, how can you ever write like this? Um, What are you reading now? Um, I'm reading um, a woman, Mariana Enriquez. She writes short stories. She's Argentinian. She's really brilliant ghost stories. And, uh, and I'm actually reading the power of the dog, which is not the Don Winslow. It's, this guy, Thomas Savage, and I'm reading it. It was written in 1967 because Jane Campion, who did the piano, yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, she it is her newest film. It's coming out in a month. It's an adaptation of this power. That, and I wanted to see why she chose this novel to adapt. So those are two, Mariana Enriquez and, um, and I think Thomas Savage. What book would you like to have written? I mean, I say two books. I Okay. I think Julian Barnes's Levels of Life is the one of the most beautiful books. Um about grief that I've ever read. And I would have loved to have written because it's actually been compared to this. Okay. I don't want people to think I'm arrogant is Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, what sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? You know, when I wrote The Archivist, I didn't think I would ever write a book like that, you know, um, in, until I met Kate. So until I, whatever I come across, well, of course, I'm supposed to go to New Zealand to write sideways for New Zealand next. And so that will take miles to another country. I don't, I think, I don't think that I would really, I don't think I'd want to write a book about anything that I I couldn't research and really know and really infuse myself personally into. I I, I wouldn't want to write a cop thing. I wouldn't want to write about a forensic analyst who's on the search for, okay, a serial killer book. I wouldn't want to write one of those. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? It is what people write to me about Sideways. Your book moved me. It changed my life. I've read it numerous times. You know, thank you for bearing your soul and giving so much of yourself, you know, and, um, you know, that, you know, that, that you're, that you're remembered. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Rex Pickett, whose novel, The Archivist, is coming to bookstores on November 9th. Rex, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Charlie, so much. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to Sophie Cousins about her new novel, Just Haven't Met You Yet. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. (laughs) 